Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I'm absolutely thrilled today because I told Alina who I would love to get on this program and she she went and convinced him. Uh, we have with us Roger Crowley, who is an award-winning author, historian and broadcaster. He's written books such as Mediterranean, Constantinople, The Last Great Siege, Empires of the Sea, which was a New York Times bestseller and the Sunday Times book of the year. But today he's here to help us fill a gap that we have mournfully neglected which is Portuguese history because Roger has also written a book called Conquerors how Portugal seized the Indian Ocean and forged the first global empire and that's what we're going to talk about today Roger welcome thank you very much I'm delighted to participate in your absolutely heroic podcast uh, mission uh, I'm staggered by the <laughs> amount of stuff you do I can't believe we're up to nearly 500 episodes and we haven't got Portugal in yet. So when she said, he said, yes, what book, what book? I was like, Portugal, Portugal. Um, but I guess for our listeners, because uh, it's not something that a lot, we know, I think everybody who knows something about the British Empire know the Portuguese were around. Um, but can you set the scene for us? So in the early part of the 15th century, Portugal is actually a small and rather poor country, isn't it? Yeah, Portugal uh, was uh, marginal to Europe. You know, it's locked out of the Mediterranean, very small country, population of about a million people, too poor to in natural resources, even to mint gold coins. And yet it has a precocious sense of national identity. The Portuguese had um, expelled the Moorish population from their country earlier than, than Spanish had. And they had a unified country with its with national borders which was set by the end of, of the 14th century a new dynasty comes along uh, called the house of aviz and this is the the kings of of this new dynasty are going to unite uh, portugal portugal long atlantic coastline no natural resources the portuguese have one skill and that is sailing they have no option but to step out into the horrible, rough, violent Atlantic Ocean and fish for stuff. And their navigational and sailing skills are really going to be the thing which provide the launch pad for the Portuguese to do extraordinary things. They start off with, uh, they want to get to India, don't they? Uh, they 
it's an evolving project for the Portuguese. They start out uh, in, 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 the, in the early 15th century under the guy that we call Henry the Navigator, although that was a 19th century romantic term. And as far as I can make out, he only ever stepped onto a ship twice. A very <laughs> short journeys. But um, their, their first aim was to get round the Islamic world, which is now a barrier uh, all the way from Constantinople in the east, along the shores of North Africa. And they know that, that somewhere on the other, that further down Africa, there is gold. There, they have access to maps produced by a Jewish cartographer from Mallorca, which have this wonderful picture of the King of Mali holding up an enormous lump of gold. And this kind of in, inspires them to start making journeys down the African coast to try and seek sources of gold. At the same time, they're embarking on another really unfortunate for world history um, project, which is slaving local people. And so there's kind of all sorts of things mixed up in the Portuguese uh, venture. But they slowly, during the 15th century, journey after journey, work their way down the African coast. And they work out um, uh, how to make these journeys. They start to map them. And they also work out how to manage the Atlantic winds. You can make your way down the coast of Africa, easy sailing. Coming back up the coast of Africa is really hard work against the wind. So they have to counterintuitively uh, work out that you have to make what the Portuguese call the sea turn. You go out into the Atlantic, quite frightening, away from land, and a wind will pick you up and sweep you back to Portugal. So they're starting to, to crack the code of the Atlantic winds, which is going to be critical, really, to you know, making long uh, voyages across the Atlantic and eventually working their way round uh, the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean. That's a monumental achievement for such a small country, isn't it? Um, is there some action up in Morocco, in Egypt as well? Well, uh, in Morocco, yeah, the Portuguese are nuts about crusading, it has to be said. And uh, those people who are not voyaging are, uh, are continu waging continuous battles with um, uh, crusading warfare in Morocco. And it was uh, very much a part of the noble um, esprit de corps, if you like, to go to Morocco and um, sort of try and conquer some uh, Islamic strongholds. And um, the honor code runs very deeply through uh, the Portuguese nobility. And there are stories of Portuguese noblemen about to attack a fortress in Morocco, being um, arguing so strongly uh, between themselves, who's going to be the first person up the ladder onto the walls that they all get killed. Um, so they're, they're, they're kind of a mixture of medieval people who have this whole chivalric uh, uh, anti-Islamic crusading thing thing and modern people who are extremely good at sailing cartography uh, and um, scientific navigation techniques they're a kind of mixture of of two worlds there i'm really interested to know do they ever clash with the spanish because the spanish are really active at this point aren't they they do um in the in the in the, in the 1470s they're fighting the spanish both on land and at sea um, the running battles with Spain or Castile, as it then was, uh, have been running for a uh, hundred years at least. They repulsed the Spanish uh, in their sort of Agincourt moment at the end of the 14th century, the Battle of Aljubarrota. Um, and the fact, great factoid for me in this is that actually um, the, um, the, there was a band of English archers there uh, who came from uh, 
just outside Gloucester from where I live. And one of those archers, one of those men is going to turn out to be um, the grandfather of um, Vasco da Gama. So mm. I, I lay a claim for the, the, the Vasco da Gama was actually um, that, that India was discovered by a man from Gloucestershire. Anyway, um, <laughs> in, the 50, in the 15th century, yes, there's fighting on land and there's fighting at sea. Uh, and um, for the offshore islands, uh, the Canaries and so on. And um, eventually they sort of carve a notional line through the ocean. We'll do this bit, you do that bit. But this the love-hate relationship between the two runs continuously throughout their history. Portuguese prince, princesses are marrying Castilian kings. So there's kind of attraction or repulsion goes on continuously. It's very strange. They can't get away from them, can they? They can't, no. I mean, um, it, it's, you know, they're, they're sort of bonded together, really, and uh, their no nobilities are intertwined. Doesn't Henry VIII marry his sister in Portugal as well? The, the, it's the oldest alliance between, uh, they say, between uh, England and Portugal, both Atlantic peoples, seafaring peoples, and um, they have, they, they've had this very strong connection right down to the port um, business in the 18th century. So the Portuguese are trying to get into Africa and dominate the Indian Ocean. How long does it take for them to achieve this? And is their stay there successful? Um, it takes them about 70 years to work out how to make their way round uh, uh, Africa. And so if they were starting to make voyages in the 1530s. Vasco da Gama sets out in 1497, makes his way around um, uh, the Cape of uh, Good Hope uh, along the east coast of Africa, discovers uh, a pilot, uh, Islamic pilot, to take them across the Indian Ocean and arrives at a town called, uh, a city called Calicut. And um, immediately there is trouble, really, because uh, the, there's a lot of stuff behind this, but they expected to find a sea full of Christian people. You might ask why well it's a long story but involves mythical idea of a king called um um Prester john and uh, they find to their horror that all the trade in the indian ocean is really run by islamic uh, merchants and the out upshot of this is that very quickly they arrive at this city called uh calicut um it's an extraordinary moment actually this has been the dream of, of people from uh, Europe since the time of Marco Polo to, to uh, get the riches of these, to have access to the spices and silk and so on. And the Portuguese turn up on three ships and, and they've discovered this place. And it's almost like Europe being seen down the long end of a, wrong end of a telescope because they arrive and uh, they send a man ashore. You usually send the most disposable man you can find who's either a prisoner or, or a Jew and um, and so they send the Jewish guy ashore and a man speaks to him in Castilian, uh, an Arab merchant, says, what on earth are you doing here? And, and the fact is that Islamic trading network was hugely long range. This guy had uh, came from Morocco. He traded with Sp Spain. And, and, and so, um, you know, it's kind of a humbling moment. You know, we talk about the age of discoveries, but we can probably just talk about the the um, the age of the uh, end of European isolation and ignorance would probably be another way of looking at it. But they're very quickly, in, in, they get themselves into, into trouble uh, and into conflict with the, um, the Raja of Calicut. They want to de demand, they're coming as 
with their conquistador helmets on, if you like, uh, monopoly trading. You know, you've got to cut the Muslim merchants out of this. He won't do this. And so we see in that expedition and a series of expeditions year by year, deteriorating relationships between uh, the, uh, uh, the, the sultans and rajas on the west coast of India and the um, the Portuguese, who really are, are coming again with this this crusader mentality, expel the Muslims, and and a, a belief that they should have unique monopoly trading rights for the spice trade. Uh, they're really uh, an interruption to thousands of years of long distance trade between Egypt and China, and the Indian Ocean was, was a, a kind of free trade co commonwealth with no armed warfare. Of course, Portuguese bring what the Spanish brought to South America, which is uh, fast-firing uh, gunpowder weapons. Uh, nobody, although, although in India they did have gunpowder weapons, nobody had gunpowder weapons on ships. And so these three ships that Vasco da Gama brings and his successors can really blast anybody out of the water. So it's, it's you know, there's technology in here as well that is part of the mix in this. Uh, but very quickly you start to see relations deteriorating and it's quite clear that the Portuguese, if they want a foothold on the coast of India, are going to have to fight for it. And they do some fairly dreadful things along the way, rather like the uh, Spanish conquistadors in the Americas. Yeah, so the initial way of gaining a monopoly over trade doesn't work. They just don't seem to get it, how it works in the region. So they resort to brute force. Does it work? Um, to, up to a point it works, yes. Uh, they are successful in establishing, um, it's a mixture there. Uh, they were actually very good at gathering information, the Portuguese. They had a lot of practice down the coast of Africa. And they worked out in the space of about 15 years, uh, no access to Google Maps. They couldn't look, or Google Earth. They couldn't look down on the Indian Ocean and say, oh, these are the important ports all the way around the Indian Ocean that we need to control. But they worked out very quickly uh, by asking questions, by learning languages, uh, but also by gunfire, bombarding uh, places into submission, sea battles and so on. And um, they, they also work out the politics of the Malabar coast, southern India, that the Raja of uh, Calicut is at odds with the Raja of Cochin further down the coast. And so they start to do deals with with one sultan, or actually these are Hindu, so Rajas would perhaps the word to use here, uh, to kind of divide and rule and, and establish a presence. And they do this very, really quite quickly. They send a fleet out every year. Uh, once they've worked out the rhythm of the monsoon winds, leaves, um, leaves Lisbon in March, arrives in India in September, uh, makes a return journey in uh, in January. It, it's a 24,000 mile round trip. You know, it's a huge operation, uh, incredibly difficult to do. But the Portuguese, I think the, the, what the Portuguese like more than anything else actually is uh, to be 500 men in a fort surrounded by sort of 50,000 Hindu warriors and fighting for their lives. They are sort of kind of nuts actually in many ways. <laughs> they like to do it Bernard Cornwell style. They certainly do, yes. Uh, <laughs> they certainly do. I mean, the most extraordinary um, case of this is this guy called Duarte Pacheco Pereira. Uh, he, he's left to uh, he's left to defend Cochin. Uh, he's out. They've done Portuguese further down the coast from uh, from Calicut. The uh, ruler of Calicut uh, and the ruler of Cochin are at odds with each other. Uh, 
So he's done a deal with Cochin and um, uh, he's, he's left with 150 men uh, in, on, on this, it's a strip of land surrounded by a lagoon just on the coast. And the, the army of, Co uh, of Calicut advances with 50,000 men. And um, it, it's kind of the, the, the Portuguese Thermopylae actually. Um, but um, he's a very bright guy. This is a guy who he, he's uh, unlike many of the Portuguese conquistadors, he's actually a very, he, he's a sort of early scientist cartographer, astronomer, mathematician. And because the Cochin is surrounded by these uh, tidal lagoons, he's probably one of the, the first person to work out the relationship between tides and the phases of the moon. And he works out that, they, that the warriors of um, Calicut can only attack Cochin uh, at certain uh, crossing points at certain phases of the tide. So he can move his 150 men, men around according to the tidal, tidal flow. And um, they're armed with, uh, you know, uh, gunpowder weapons. And they manage to see off this vast force. It was an extraordinary achievement. Uh, Pereira is interesting, really. He, he is an observer, and many of the Portuguese were. For example, he's the first man to uh, observe and record chimpanzees using t primitive tools to carry out operations. So they're gathering... They're, they're not just, you know, head-banging, um, uh, brutal uh, incomers. There is a mix in this, uh, a process of discovering and describing the world. And Pereira writes a book about this, actually. Um, so they're actually adding to the knowledge stock, European knowledge stock. And a lot of this stuff will be translated into other European languages in the 16th century. They're observers as well as fighters. I in a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Thing. I have to ask, you've mentioned crusading a couple of times already. Just how much of a role does religion play in the expansion of the Portuguese empire? It plays a huge role uh, on two levels. The first level is um, uh, we just going back into the history of the Crusades. Um, the, by, by the time that the Crusaders have been thrown out of the Holy Land, they have realized that um, uh, a geostrategic idea emerges that if you could outflank the Islamic world and attack Islam from behind, you might be able to destroy it. Now, um, and during the process of, of, of the voyages of exploration, they make their way into the Indian Ocean. And King Manuel of Portugal, the man who's, who really runs the uh, voyage of exploration, he, who is uh, full of messianic dreams of being the Christian emperor of the world, comes up with this weird, you know, he doesn't think small. His, his, his idea is to, um, once he's made his way into the Indian Ocean, um, that the Portuguese should make their way up the Red Sea, kidnap the body of the Prophet Muhammad from Medina, hold it to ransom and get Jerusalem back. Um, <laughs> extraordinary dream. Um, so, um, 
so th there is this kind of weird um a crusading thing running through his uh, thing. Not, I have to say, not shared by many Portuguese who just wanted to go to India and get the stuff. But at the same time, because they come into the Indian Ocean um, as enemies of uh, the Islamic world and Islam, uh, the Islamic Indian Ocean is, 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 is a fact, and they find themselves in direct con contest with, um, with um, Islamic people, they are guilty of uh, extraordinary sort of signal atrocities, one of which was um, Vasco de Gama coming across a boatload of pilgrims returning from the Hajj uh, in uh, Mecca uh, called the Miri and uh, burning the, uh, uh, the, the, the ship and all its crew, men, women and children alive, which is going to remain something that is being, going to be remembered by later Indian historians as we enter into into a post-colonial world uh we we see the burning of mosques on the coast of india with people in them and so on and so we see terrible things happening in the same way that the the that the spanish were, were were doing in south america after a while it calms down a bit i have to say and um wiser heads come along and work out that um that uh, it is better to uh the there are the problem for the Portuguese, unlike the Spanish, is that these are tiny country. There are never more than about two or three, three thousand men in the Indian Ocean at any one time. And the ability to control, you know, this vast terrain by brute force is just not on. So they come up with two policies. One is um, uh, fort fortress-based policy. So you, ha you have a very strong uh, fortress on, dotted da along the coast of India and indeed on the coast of Africa which you couldn't defend. And um, the other uh, wiser policy, which they develop and sort of weirdly enlightened over the course of time is that you have to come to terms a bit with the Islamic world. And um, certainly in the case of um, uh, Calicut and, and later Goa, they come up with the idea that if you send, this is not like the Mayflower where um, people go to America, men, women, and children. This is a, this is an exploration solely by men, really. And the guy who who looks at this is a later a governor of India called Alfonso d'Albuquerque, and he realizes that if you have men and uh, with no women. Uh, in a place like Goa, you're going to have trouble, you're going to have rapes, you're going to have all sorts of things. So he actually encourages a mixed marriage policy, much to the uh, dislike of the Catholic Church. The women have to uh, convert to uh, Christianity. Um, but, um, and, then, and so one of, the, one of the contributions, if you can put it like this, to the dark and very mixed story of European colonialism is that the Portuguese are really uh, the creators of mixed race um, uh, societies actually uh, you know, and you'll see the same in Brazil and so on um, so you know there's sort of strange things happening here um, uh, but the, the signal fact is that there are never there are they say of the Portuguese a small people with a whole world to die in you know um, there are never very many of them there aren't, the population is just not large enough to to colonize land all they can do is hold down a, a, a fortress is, uh, or landfalls on, on the coast. They can never, they do, of course, manage in the long run in Brazil to establish uh, uh, a territorial empire. But everywhere else, the Portuguese are just dotted along the coast doing trading things. 
and um, and that and that policy towards the Islamic world starts to soften and um, and, and a, a sort of uh, more cultural method of controlling people or interacting with people starts to emerge in the 16th century. But you have to say that an awful lot of ghastly things went on along the way. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There are other problems that the Portuguese ended up facing. Uh, one of them was long journeys to India. What did these journeys look like? How many people on average end up surviving them? Well, um, these journeys look like hell, I have to say, although probably not as awful as the journeys that the, uh, the Spanish were subsequently making across the Pacific Ocean. But you set out from Lisbon in, in March, uh, you spend 90 days at sea, seeing no land. You do an enormous swing out into the, uh, into the Atlantic Ocean, uh, almost to Brazil. And in fact, they discovered the Brazil as part of that process. Uh, the wind carries you around uh, to the tip of Africa. The 90 days at sea is dangerous because um, you can't keep fresh food uh, going for that long. And the danger for all long distance voyages is scurvy, which will start to kill people after about 80 days. So it, uh, and this is before you have the storm thrown in. You then um, work your way up the coast of, of, of Africa uh, stopping at various ports along the way. Hopefully, if, if you can persuade people or you can bombard people into being um, uh, helpful. Um, and, and then you make your way across the Indian Ocean with the monsoon wind. Um, the, the, what The shipwreck statistic is huge. I think about 35% of all the people who went out in the first five years died in shipwrecks. And the strange there's a whole portuguese literature actually from the 16th century called the tragic history of the sea which is about these tales of people being wrecked off the, on the coast of namibia or somewhere and crawling away and dying uh, cannibalism and so on and the strange thing is uh that the longer these voyages went on into the 16th century the um the greater the shipwreck statistic became and there are various explanations for that. The ships got bigger and, and less maneuverable and so on. But actually making the voyage is, is really, really tough. And of course, they hadn't worked out about scurvy. They accidentally discover when they get uh, uh, round, uh, round the Cape of Good Hope 
they um, moor in various places and um, they start to eat oranges and so on. And they think, oh, well, it's because the air is better here. And it's going to be a long while before sailors work out that what you need is a bit of lime juice or, or even, you know, some clothes or something. So it's always tough going, really. Um, and... Um, um, it, it requ requires formidable sailing skills, which the Portuguese had, um, but none of this is ever easy. And yet, you've mentioned Brazil. Uh, what is the extent of their empire at its height? Um, at the height of its empire, it's really um, footholds all the way around Africa, uh, the mouth of the Persian Gulf, um, all the way down the coast of uh, India uh, to Malacca on the uh, on the uh, western coast of Malaya, and then on into um, the Spice Islands the, uh, the, in the Indonesian archipelago, and um, so uh, and then. To the west, it is going to be uh, the one place that they do colonize, although very slowly over a long period of time, uh, is going to be Brazil. And all sorts of little smatterings of places on the west coast of Africa, uh, uh, in uh, what is now Nigeria, and um, uh, in later centuries, uh, they will have um, Mozambique, for example, um, Will uh, and, and on the west coast of Africa as well, but in, in the historic Portuguese period, if you look at a map of Portuguese colonialization in the um, say the 17th or 16th century, you get a series of little dots all the way around the, the coast from um, yeah. uh, Lisbon to Malaya and beyond, and a larger green growing green area in Brazil and that's it. If you compare uh, the um, Spanish uh, colonial map of the same period you get a vast area of red or whatever color you want it you yeah. know across the Americas. So, Is it because they lack the numbers? Is that why they never penetrate the interior anymore? Of yeah. The yeah 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 uh, yeah they just don't have the people and it is the most improbable empire really uh, and it is extraordinary if you want to be well, it's difficult not to talk about this in the post-colonial way now, but mm. um, it was it, it, uh, in terms of the skill, the knowledge, um, the uh, uh, and, and, and it was a freak really. And yeah. you know, the, the guy who uh, meets the first person who comes ashore at Calicut, sent by Vasco da Gama, uh, he doesn't. He not only says, "What on earth are you doing here?" why is it not venice or the king of spain you know why you you know you're, you're nobody you know this is a tiny place um, <laughs> and the portuguese uh in terms of historiography feel very sore about the fact that they did extraordinary things in the world and yet their whole um their whole narrative has been trumped by the columbus story uh and Part of that relationship between Spain and, and Portugal is very interesting in the sense that Columbus learnt uh, all his sailing in Portugal. He was married to a Portuguese woman and um, he made voyages down the African coast on Portuguese ships. And he'd lobbied the king of Spain, King John, to make the journey uh, westward. 
uh, and John turned him down because uh, uh, John and his uh, cartographers, he had very bright uh, cosmographers, Jewish uh, uh, cosmographers who decided that um, Columbus, his idea that, you know, it was 90 days sailing to Japan or something was, was just wrong. He'd made the world 25% too small, which indeed he had. So in the end, Columbus has to go to the King of Castile and bend his ear, who agrees to fund the, the journey. And of course, he discovers India in inverted commas, which is really the Bahamas and, you know, bits of the Dominican Republic and so on. And it's, you know, it's kind of a quite a long time before people realize that Columbus isn't anywhere near the um, but um, the Columbus story, of course, has trumped the, the 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 Portuguese. I mean, what Columbus did sailing across the Atlantic was, you know, brave and, and stepping out into the unknown as well. But I think the Portuguese story has been has been rather neglected, actually. And there's a there's a there's a long once we've dealt with the dark side of this, and there is a dark side to the Portuguese story. Um, they um, they they create the uh, Atlantic slave trade, yeah. and there is a uh, there is a building uh, on the Algarve at Lagouche, uh, which was the first uh, slave trading um, uh, you know whatever you want to call it um, building uh, in the world. And if you want to call the classical moment for the start of the slave trade is uh, I think it's uh, 1444 when uh, 250 African slaves are unloaded on, on the beach there. And because uh, the investors in the journey all have a share, the uh, African people are divided into, uh, into, into groups, into five groups. So women are separated from children and so on. And it's, it's terribly distressing to read about, but... Um, the, the man who wrote it at the time, uh, of course, uh, doesn't quite see it like this because he ends up by saying, the good thing was that we've sold, saved their souls um, for the Christian faith. Um, so there is that dark side to the Portuguese story. Yeah. The other dark side really is going to be uh, that they move between three and five million people. Uh, well, it's the same story really. Uh, they are the inventors of the Atlantic slave trade, which is going to be taken over by the uh, English and the Dutch. They move between three and five million people to uh, Brazil over a two or three hundred year uh, period. They do all sorts of other things. This, this, think of Port Portuguese empire as a network rather than a colonial thing. Mm. And the network does all sorts of other things. It moves um, crop species around the world. Um, uh, it, for example, it moves maize from the Americas to Africa, which will have a long-term positive effect on the diet of African people. Foodstuffs, technologies, uh, it introduces uh, firearms into Japan, not exactly a great contribution. Um, it, uh, astronomical in, uh, instruments into China. And really by the network, by the uh, second half of the 16th century, a Portuguese nobleman, uh, can order a dinner set uh, from a Ming potter. And through a series of middle middlemen, um, you start to see the goods of the East um, starting to appear in Europe. Um, a lens from, uh, from Germany can be exported to um, uh, Indian kings. Uh, and uh, an elephant, they, they, they're quite famous um, um, little episode in Involving um, 
um, exotic animals arriving in Portugal. Uh, Alfonso de Albuquerque, who's governor, sends the king of Portugal an elephant. And this elephant uh, is, becomes the animal superstar of the early 16th century. Um, Manuel sends it to the Pope as a kind of um, as a present, but also as a bit of Portuguese PR. And it arrives in Rome with an Indian uh, um, team of Indians leading and riding this thing. Uh, great show of Oriental splendor and so on. And the Pope is delighted with his elephant. Uh, not least because you give it a bucket of water, it will spray water all over the cardinals. <laughs> and and, and, and there are, there's a famous drawing of the elephant by Raphael, I think it is, and um, there are poems written about it. He's called Hanno, after Hannibal. And, um, but unfortunately, they don't really understand um, animal management or uh, elephant diet very well, and they feed it a laxative of gold, which rather finishes off poor old Hanno. Aww. The follow-up gift was a rhinoceros, but the rhinoceros gets drowned, unfortunately, just in a shipwreck off the coast of uh, of Italy. And oh, there's no. a famous famous picture by Dura, which is very strange because Dura never saw the rhinoceros, but uh, but somebody had sent him a sketch of it. It produces a very famous print of this rhinoceros. And this is the, not since the Romans have we seen some of these creatures coming into the. Um, you know, uh, coming into Europe. So Lisbon becomes an extraordinary uh, exotic place. Mm. And this is really part of the whole explosion of the European imagination about the way the world works, what's in it, uh, the amount of writing that is starting to be generated. Uh, and really it feeds into the whole, um, the whole enlarging 16th century story of the age of um of, of exploration so there are good things in this if you can call them good things although you know we're now obviously re having to reverse engineering what that mm. means um but it but it certainly was they made a major contribution to the globalization of of, of peoples of knowledge of crops of foodstuffs of technologies um not not alone the spanish were doing it as well and then obviously the english and the dutch will join in afterwards uh, but they are a, they're they're really a front runner uh, in many ways. So just tell us a little bit about. So they are overstretched. Um, they are it, the whole thing is um, a, a freak, as you say. Tell us about the decline then. Um, well, the, the decline is going to come when uh, the English and the D Dutch. If, certainly, if we're talking about India and beyond, uh, cotton onto the game and. Um, the uh, the Dutch, particularly the coming of the Dutch Golden Age at the end of the uh, of the sixteenth early seventeenth century. Um, uh, the the we have to say the Portuguese going back to the religious thing were keen in converting people to uh, Christianity, and the the Jesuits set up in Goa and send out great missions to convert people. The Dutch um, really steal all the industrial information that the Portuguese have. Portuguese make a big effort to try and uh, redact information. Ships that come back from the Indies to Lisbon, their maps and their, and their charts are confiscated and they're trying to stop this leakage of information about how you get there, but they couldn't. And particularly when the Dutch come along, um, the Dutch actually uh, are extremely ruthless um, and they, they are guilty of terrible acts of genocide in certainly in the Spice Islands in the Indonesian archipelago. And they dismantle a, a great part of the Indian Ocean um, empire of um, the Portuguese 
fairly quickly. And um, so they lose Malacca they, and they, uh, they lose a, a lot of the spice trade to the Dutch who really monopolize this for a 200 year period. And the money drains through the hands of the Portuguese because what lies behind this is uh, that we, we think of the Portuguese as being on their own, but actually this is a story of Europe at this time. And what is happening is that uh, the, from the beginning of the 16th century, what feeds into the uh, Portuguese story is military technology. And a lot of this comes from, not from, comes from Germany. Um, uh, the use of money, uh, German and uh, Italian bankers, the use of, um, of commercial know-how. And Portugal remains in many respects, like Spain, uh, a society a medieval society. It has a nobility and it has a peasant class. It never really develops an entrepreneurial um, middle class. Um, and, and so um, a lot of the people who actually go out to work for the Portuguese are Genoese or Venetian or uh, Dutch and so on. And um, Albuquerque says to Manuel at one point, sire, if you want a, a good agent in Goa, send for a man from Italy he will cheat you, but he will do it far more effectively and efficiently than a man from Portugal. So they never, they, the society doesn't develop. It remains kind of, you know, frozen somehow. And the same for the Spanish. The money, all this wealth that comes into these countries, both Spain and Portugal, somehow slips through their fingers. And, and the wealth is kind of going to be, you know, we're going to see the story of the 16th century is, is the action is going to move north. It's going to move to, uh, to Holland. It's going to move to the, um, <clears throat> Germany and it's going to move to England. Uh, and um, we're going to see Spain they, and Portugal, their empires are obviously going to continue right up into modern times. But uh, the wealth is going to drain away and it's going to drain away to really the Protestant peoples of Northern Europe, people who are not interested in converting people to Christianity quite so much. Um, and um, who are who are merchant venturers, much much more efficient merchant venturers than the Portuguese were. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. That was really enlightening. Um, it's such a gap that we managed to plug. Alex got so excited that uh, we had to get you on on board to talk about this because we haven't had very much Portuguese history. So, thank you so much for being able to plug this gap for us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you enormously and uh, may your, your podcast continue to uh, enlighten and inform the world. It's a great job. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work on quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. 
You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.